church. And when we begin to understand the supremacy of Jesus and who he is as our king and as our God, that's going to help us to understand that we, we can't forsake him. What would we be thinking if we forsook Christ, the Lord of creation? When you consider what you read at the beginning of chapter 5 and you consider Christ's beauty that we see there, it helps us to, to keep in mind that if we're forsaking Christ, we're forsaking the glorious king of beauty. Salvation is found in no other name. And that's, that's the context that Hebrews 5.11 through 6.8 is found. So let's read our text for this evening. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. He says, about this, we have much to say. In other words, the high priesthood of Jesus that he just talked about. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since some of you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern dis- or, or to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. For land that has drunk the rain, it often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So here's a brief overview of our passage. In chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, Hebrews describes a group of Christians in this church that have become dull of hearing. They're sluggish. They're not willing to respond to the word of God. And this group is, grow- is not growing into maturity because they have hard hearts, because they're not receptive towards God's word. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, this same group of individuals, they are called to grow in their maturity. Here, those in the church who are dull in hearing are called to grow up into adulthood. They're to leave their immature ways aside and grow up into maturity. And then finally, in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6, we have a warning that's geared towards those who fail to leave their state of sluggishness. 
So this group is dull of hearing, then they are called to maturity. And then what we see is that if they do not heed this call towards maturity, here's a warning that you need to consider. So let's begin in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. This group of individuals, they are dull of hearing. Here we see that this group of individuals in the church, they have, they have become hard-hearted, essentially. That's, that's what the word dull of hearing means. It means they're not willing to listen to what God's word says. So notice what verse 11, notice, notice what we see here in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So when he says there at the very beginning of the verse, about this we have much more to say, he's referring to everything he just explained in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. The fact that Jesus is the great high priest. You see, the, the author of Hebrews, he wants to go more into this idea of how grand and beautiful Christ is as our great high priest, and he actually will do that later in chapter 7 and 8. But before he does that, he needs to address a reality in this church. He needs to address the fact that there are a group of individuals in this church incapable of understanding these more complex details about Christ because they are hard-hearted and because they are not willing and able to hear what the word of God says. They still need milk, in other words. Here's, Here's the train of thought. Why would we go on to talk about complicated theological topics when you guys don't even understand the foundational truths of the gospel? You see, at times people want to focus more on complicated or technical matters of Christian theology when they don't even understand or put into practice the basic tenets of the faith. So they want to talk about theology and and, and in-depth doctrine, but they don't understand that as a Christian, you and I, we we are called to turn away from our sin. It's like you want to talk about complex doctrine, but you don't understand that a Christian doesn't sleep with his or her boyfriend or girlfriend. Christian doesn't keep smoking pot and going out to parties on the weekends. A Christian doesn't continue working at a strip club after becoming a Christian, right? This is just foundational, practical truths about Christianity. And yet there are some people who want to study Revelation in depth or they want to deal with like super complicated questions about free will and predestination when they don't understand the practical foundational doctrines of Christianity. Maybe you know someone with this attitude. Maybe you have had this attitude. For all I know, maybe you have this attitude. (laughs) Notice what he says in verse 12 and 13. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So here he is implying that Christians should become mature enough to teach others the the doctrines of Christianity, the basic doctrines of Christianity. They should have a firm understanding of what the gospel is, and they should be able to teach others. And yet they're incapable 
of doing this because they need to be retaught the, the basic principles of, of Christianity. So rather than growing up into maturity and eating meat, they are still like infants who, who need milk. They're like children and capable of teaching because they're immature. But notice what we see here. I mean, this implies that Christians, as Christians, we should all grow up into maturity. We should all grow in our understanding of the word of God. And we should even, we should even eventually have the ability to teach God's word, at least at a basic level. And that doesn't mean we're all called to, you know, be preachers and be able to speak about a single passage for an hour and a half or anything. That's not what this is saying. But this does mean that every Christian eventually should grow up to the point where they are able to handle God's word well enough to explain it to others in the faith. You should be able to explain what the gospel means and how it affects your life. You should be able to do that as a mature Christian. And everyone in this room is called to that. The ability to teach God's word is actually a mark of maturity. And so I ask, where are you at? Are you, are you specifically you capable of teaching God's word? Are you on a general level able to explain what the Bible means? Just on basic passages. I'm not talking about theological complex difficult texts. I'm talking about a general understanding of what the gospel is. Are you able to teach that? Here's the thing. Some of you in this room are still playing in the toy room like toddlers when you should be teaching toddlers. Literally, some of you should be teaching in children's ministry. (laughs) Some of you should be leading small groups on Wednesday and Thursday nights to middle school and high school ministry. So why aren't you there? What is preventing you from doing that? What is preventing you from being able to teach God's word? What's preventing you from growing up into maturity? Is there something that is quenching your growth? Is there something that is causing you to become dull of hearing? Notice what verse 14 says now. Here we see that there was something prohibiting these individuals from growing. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, that's a bit of a complicated sentence. I get that. But all he's saying here is that an understanding of God's word and the ability to teach God's word, the ability to grow into maturity is directly related to your ability to discern between good and evil. In other words, your understanding of who God is is directly related to your Christian morality. Their sluggish hearts are motivated by not only immaturity, but immorality. Their lack of understanding is rooted in their disobedience and their inability to discern between righteousness and wickedness. According to verse 14 here, maturity is rooted in a constant practice of discerning between good and evil. We have this tendency to think that spiritual understanding 
is rooted solely in the intellect, solely in the mind. That's not true. That's a lie. Their misunderstanding here, their dullness of hearing was actually rooted not in their intellect, not in their inability to understand doctrine. It was actually rooted in their immorality, their unwillingness to discern between what is good and what is evil. So recognize this. Your understanding of the word is directly tied to your obedience to the word. Do you understand that? So maybe the reason that you're not growing in your understanding of who God is is because you are consumed with pornography. Perhaps the reason that you're still drinking milk and not eating meat is because you think constantly, all the time, about what other people think of you. Maybe your lack of spiritual insight is tied to your unhealthy relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend. These sorts of vices will certainly, without exception, always prohibit your spiritual understanding. It's guaranteed. That's because spiritual understanding is not only intellectual, it is moral. By nature, spiritual growth, spiritual understanding is by nature also moral. And so, if you are living an immoral life, it will inevitably, guaranteed, affect your spiritual understanding and your spiritual maturity. So Amanda and Theo and I, we were out of town last week in New England at my brother's wedding. And at one point, I was checking out of the room where we were staying, and I was handed the bill. And now, the bill was twice as expensive as I thought it was going to be. Instead of $300, it was $600. And when I came back from the the office, I was frustrated with the bill in my hand. And in front of my entire family, I voiced my frustration. But Amanda noticed something about my frustration. It wasn't merely frustration. She noticed a tone in my voice. And she kindly pointed out to me days later that it wasn't just frustration that I was demonstrating in that moment. There was actually grumbling and complaining. There was bitterness going on in that situation. and I wasn't trusting Christ. In that moment, I wasn't just mad. I was actually bitter and I was grumbling. I didn't want to spend all that money, and so I went back to the car and I began to complain. And as I was hearing Amanda communicate this to me, I realized that she was was on to something. She was absolutely right. In that moment, I was not trusting God's provision. I was not trusting that God is in control, that he cares for us, that he is going to take care of our family. I was complaining with bitterness. And so why do I tell this story? Because I'm convinced that bitterness in my heart, grumbling and complaining in my own heart, will affect my spiritual maturity. It's a guarantee. If I have bitterness in my heart, that is going to affect my ability to discern between good and evil. But I want to grow. I want to grow. I don't want to be dabbling with sin. I don't want to be fighting against silly sins like that forever. I I don't want to remain immature. But if I'm grumbling and complaining in disbelief, 
I'm going to be like the Israelites who were in the wilderness, who left Egypt and for years complained and grumbled against God. And because of that, they put their own souls in danger. And I don't want to put my own soul in danger. I don't want to put my own heart in danger. See, if, if we lack the ability to discern between right and wrong, then we are stunting our growth. We're actually putting our souls in jeopardy. So we're now going to look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection from the dead and the eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. So now, after addressing these individuals who have become dull of hearing, the author of Hebrews calls them to maturity. He calls them to grow. Essentially, we have here an exhortation that's directed at those who are dull of hearing. And Hebrews is calling these individuals to to leave their infancy and to grow up into adulthood. And he tells them we need to move past these foundational doctrines. He wants them to, to move on so that they can discuss the high priesthood of Christ. But he recognizes that many of the people in this church, they aren't going to be able to do that. They aren't going to be able to understand the more complex doctrines about Jesus and who he is. And so he's calling them to move forward. You need to grasp these foundational doctrines and then move forward. But we can't lose sight of the fact that this isn't an idea. The the idea here isn't that you need to leave the foundational doctrines behind as if they're not important. It's more so we need to build on this. We need to build on these foundational doctrines. So this isn't just a call to move on and forget about these foundational doctrines. This is a call to build on them. So here's a list of the foundational doctrines that we as Christians should seek to grow in our understanding of. So first thing he says, we should understand repentance from dead works and faith towards God. We should understand this. Basically, what this means is that every individual needs to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. That's what it means on a basic level to be a Christian. You turn from your sin and you turn to Christ in faith, seeking salvation in Christ himself. The second thing we see is instruction on washings. Now, you might be thinking right now, like, wait a second, I thought that this was all about elementary doctrines. I thought this was about, like, basic principles, and I have no clue what in the world instruction on washings are. Right? Do any of you feel that right now? You're thinking, wait a second, so does this mean I'm, like, dull in hearing and I'm immature? Well, I just want to let you know, I think it's actually quite tricky to understand what he's actually referring to. Here is... Uh, Here's my best, my best go at what he's getting at. For a church that was surrounded by um, Judaism, this was a church that was tempted to return to Judaism, they needed to understand the instructions, this is a, somewhat of a technical idea, the instruction of washings. And it was a distinction between Christian baptism and Jewish washings. 
so this was a common thing in the early church. They, they had to distinguish for the church the difference between all of the rituals in Judaism that had to do with washings and baptism itself. So that is my best understanding of what is going on here. So when it says washings here, that it's actually the same word for baptism. You can see that if you have an ESV, you can check the footnote. That's, that's what's going on here, same word. And so that's how I understand what is happening here. They were tempted to go backwards into Judaism and they were having to be reminded, listen, the, the washings of Judaism did not actually provide a, a cleansing from sin. When you turn to Christ, you commit yourself to Christ and you are baptized, there, there is a transformation that happens in the life of a new believer. There's an actual cleansing, not by the, the washing of the water that happens in baptism, but the spiritual representation of what baptism accomplishes. It actually accomplishes a, a true spiritual transformation, a true cleansing, unlike the washings of Judaism. Remember, baptism is an event that occurs after an individual places faith in Christ. So Christians are called to be baptized into water as a sign that we have been buried with Christ. So when we go under the water, we're demonstrating we have been buried with Christ. We have died with him, died to our old way of living. And then when we come up from the water, it's an example, a portrait of the fact that we, like Christ, have been raised from the dead. And now we have the ability to walk in newness of life. There's true transformation, true cleansing, unlike the cleansings of Judaism. That's my best bet at describing what's going on there. So the next element in this list is the laying on of hands. And again, you're going, wait a second, the laying on of hands? What, what's that referring to? I, again, I thought this was like all about elementary doctrines and I don't know what he's even talking about here. So what's he mean? Well, in scripture, people will lay their hands on other Christians for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they lay their hands on someone for blessings, sometimes for healing, sometimes to commission someone to ministry, sometimes to receive spiritual gifts. But often, and most profoundly, it's for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. So we see this multiple times in the book of Acts. And I think, again, I'm not going to die on this hill, but I think that because this list is referring to basic doctrines about Christianity, and it's most of the items on this list are related to salvation, I think that this is likely just referring to the laying on of hands that would happen in the early church. And, and when that laying of hands took place, that person would receive the Holy Spirit. That happened three different times in the book of Acts. I think that's probably what he's referring to. So when we get to the end of chapter or verse two, though, we see two more elementary doctrines, and these ones are actually clear. <laughs> you aren't left doing a bunch of guesswork here. So verse two, two more elementary doctrines. Here we are, are spoken to about the afterlife. Christians understand this. This is, this is a, a basic doctrine. After this life, there will be a resurrection from the dead. And after this life, there will be a judgment. So either you will be judged for your sin or you will be raised from the dead in order to w live for eternity with Christ in his presence. So what is his point in bringing up this list. 
Well, this is, this is a list of foundational doctrines to point out that they should understand these truths already. They should understand the fact that as Christians, you repent of your sin. You're baptized. You, you believe in an afterlife. And yet it seems like they are struggling even with these basic doctrines about Christianity. They're remaining infants. That's not an option as a Christian. They still don't understand that Christians repent from their sins and strive to walk in newness of life. They don't quite understand that. And so he's recognizing, we're not going to talk about the more complicated doctrines if you don't realize that you need to repent of your sin and walk in newness of life. So you don't need to... um, be asking questions about who the horsemen are in the book of Revelation or the relationship between predestination and free freedom of the will if, if you don't understand that you need to turn from your sin. We're wasting our time. So if you aren't willing to stop sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or if you aren't willing to stop partying, if you're not willing to repent from your sins, then you're kind of wasting everyone's time asking these questions that are irrelevant for your situation. Who the four horsemen are in the book of Revelation, what does that matter? You, you need to turn from your sin. That's the point here. You need to be asking different questions, not how does predestination and free will work out. You need to be asking a question, am I even a Christian? Have I even trusted Christ in the first place? That's what Hebrews is getting at here. We cannot move on to more complicated doctrines like the high priesthood of Christ because you are not willing to to accept, trust, and love these foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And this leads to our final section in the passage. So after pointing out that these Christians have become dull of hearing and that they need to grow up into maturity, he then presents a pointed warning that's directed at those who do not move on to spiritual adulthood. So in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6, we have a depiction of apostasy, falling away from Christ. So verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tested, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So what we have here, like I said, is one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. I, I just want to be clear with that very debated, but that does not mean that this passage is impossible to understand. It's not me, it, it, this does not mean that this passage is not useful because it's complicated, because it's debated. That doesn't mean it's not useful. In fact, I, I really think that this passage is pretty straightforward, and that's kind of why it's difficult. Because it's so straightforward, we're, we're left wondering, wait a second, how could he actually say that? So let's dissect what he says here for a moment. He offers a warning, and he begins by depicting a group of people. He says that these are a people who are 
enlightened. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. They have shared of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the age to come. And they have fallen away. That's the type of person that we are talking about. The person who turns to Christ only to fall away shortly thereafter. Now I have to point out, I do think he is talking about Christians here. He explicitly says they have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have been enlightened. They have tasted of the heavenly gift and the goodness of God's word. That's a depiction of a Christian. But then Hebrews says that if this person who has experienced these things falls away, then he cannot be restored to repentance. It would be impossible to restore this person to repentance. In other words, if you come to the church and you accept Christ and then you fall away, you aren't coming back, it would be impossible. Now, I know you might have 10, maybe 100 questions circling in your head right now, but let that thought linger for a moment here. I abandon Christ. I am not coming back. Let that linger. If I choose this sort of lifestyle instead of serving Christ, I'm not coming back. If I fall to the temptations of this world, I am not coming back. If, if I give in to the, the, the war of ideas that are coming at me in the classroom, if I give in to them and abandon Christ, I'm not coming back. If I choose this friend group, if I choose not being lonely over Christ, I'm not coming back. If I choose this relationship where I know this, this other person is going to drag me into sin for the rest of my life, if I choose that over Christ, I'm not coming back. Let that sit for a moment. Let the weight of that set in. At a basic surface reading, that is what he says here. It's impossible. And so I think two questions in particular arise from this text. First, is it true that an actual, genuine Christian can abandon Jesus like this? And second, what does it mean that if a person abandons Christ, that it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance? What does that even mean? So first, can a Christian experience this? Many people, including myself, just want to be clear with that, including, um, I think, I think it's a clear teaching throughout Scripture. Many people would agree that no, a Christian cannot fall away from Christ. But here's where I differ from many people. Many will look at this verse and they'll point out that eh, this, doesn't, this isn't actually talking about Christians. This is talking about those who are in the church who are false converts. These are fakes, right? They're, they're false 
imposters. They aren't true, genuine Christians. Is that what the text says, though? Could that description actually be a false convert, a fake? Are they almost Christians? Are they fake Christians? Well, notice, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. And you might be thinking, well, that word tasted, that doesn't seem like a strong word. Maybe it just means, you know, they they got acquainted with the church. They kind of tried Christianity and then eventually spit it out. Well, in chapter 2, verse 9, this same word is used, and it's used to describe Jesus who tasted death. Did Jesus just kind of try on death and then take it off? Did he say, "Eh, I'm going to just like put it in my mouth and then spit it out? No, he died. If you don't believe Jesus died, then that's heresy. That's false teaching. He died. He fully died. He actually died. He went into the grave for three days and then he rose from the dead. So he didn't just taste it and then spit it out. No, he swallowed it. He consumed it. He experienced death. And in the same way that Christ experienced death, these individuals have tasted of the heavenly gift of salvation. So, from my understanding, this is talking about Christians falling away. And so here's how I understand this passage. This is a warning that is directed at Christians. It's a warning directed at believers. And just like the rest of the Hebrews' warnings, it is meant to provoke believers and prompt believers to remain faithful to Christ. That's the point of these warnings. True Christians, when they hear warnings like this, they respond with obedience and repentance and faith. True Christians remain faithful to the gospel. True uh, uh, Christians respond to these warnings. And so while a true believer in Christ will hear these warnings and respond with faith, a false Christian won't do that. A A false Christian will not respond with obedience. Instead, false Christians respond by abandoning Jesus. So in light of that, we need to consider a second question. What does it mean that it is impossible, actually impossible, for someone who has forsaken Christ to be restored to repentance? Again, there have been a number of interpretations about this passage throughout history. I mean, does this really mean if someone leaves Jesus, they they have no chance? There's no way they're ever going to be able to come back. Is that what this means? Well, some leaders in the church, throughout church history and the early church, actually took it to mean essentially that. They would say, if you abandon Jesus, if you commit apostasy, they would never let people back into their church and join back into membership. Essentially, you leave, you're done. You're not coming back. I don't think that's the best way of understanding this passage. I don't think that's what this Means I don't think this is a statement to churches saying, do not let a person who repents from their sin return. Remember, Jesus leaves 99 sheep in search for one who has strayed. Jesus told a story of a prodigal son 
who abandoned his father for his sin only to eventually return to the father. And guess what? The father waited for the son to return with arms open wide and began to run after the son. Peter asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? Jesus says, no, 77 times. So when someone strays, we as a church pursue that individual with hope and expectation that they might one day return. So like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep, we go after them. Like the father who accepts the prodigal son back after he has rebelled, we accept someone back with open arms. We do that because we know that God is responding in the same exact way. So if you have turned to sin and rebellion, hear this. God is willing to receive you back. He's waiting and anticipating your return. His arms are open and he's willing to receive you. So come back. Don't remain in your rebellion and sin. You can seek God because he is gracious and he is extending an offer of forgiveness with his arms open for you right this very moment. Now, I recognize that doesn't actually answer the question though. If this doesn't mean that we should prevent someone from returning to the church after rebelling against God, what does it mean? Well, here's my best stab at it. The author here is addressing a group of individuals in the church who are faced with a decision. Do I abandon Christ or do I remain faithful? They're at a crossroads. They're facing all sorts of persecution. They're facing all sorts of temptation from the society. What are they going to do? Are they going to abandon Jesus or are they going to remain with Christ? And I believe that the author here is emphasizing that if a person decides to forsake Jesus, they will have no desire to ever return. It's speaking to the reality that when individuals decide, make a conscious decision, I'm leaving Christ. When people do that, they aren't going to return. It's not that God is unable to forgive them. It's that they will have no desire to reunite themselves with Jesus and his church. So when people decide to turn from Jesus, a searing happens in that moment. Their hearts and their consciences are hardened. In that sense, they are as good as gone. When people decide to turn from Christ so often what happens is they never come back. They don't return. So when you make that conscience, that conscious decision, I'm leaving this for the relationship. I'm leaving this for the friend group. I'm leaving this for these intellectual ideas. You're making a decision that is going to have ramifications on the rest of your life. It's essentially a guarantee. It is unlikely more than unlikely that you will never return back to Christ. And so if you're here right now and you feel sensitive to his spirit, then the impossibility spoken of here in this text 
isn't referring to you. If you feel sensitive to his spirit, a spirit right now, respond with faith. Do so because God is at work. If you want to repent, then do so with joy because God is freely offering forgiveness to weary and broken sinners like you and I. He's willing to do it. However, if you are here and you do not desire to repent, if you do not desire to respond to the warnings of Scripture, I am afraid you have a seared conscience. But I would say, prove me wrong. Please, prove me wrong. Prove to me that God is actually at work in this moment, that his spirit is at work in your heart. Because a hardened and a unrepentant heart has one thing to look forward to, eternal death and destruction. Verses seven through eight, they loom over this passage in a profound way. He provides to close this section, this this depiction, a, a parable, if you will, of a land that does not produce fruit, even though it receives rain from heaven. So verse seven, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So this is a depiction, an illustration, seeking one thing, to ask this question, how do you respond to the gospel? When, when the gospel of Christ reigns on your heart, what comes of that? Do you respond with faith and obedience? Do you begin to bear fruit? Do crops come forth from you? If so, be comforted because God is at work. If you are responding to God's call with faith and there's, there's fruit, there's evidence that God is at work, you have reason to be comforted. God is at work. His spirit is working in you. However, if you only produce thorns and thistles, bitterness and strife, anger and lust, if that's the only thing coming from your heart, then you need to beware because the deceptiveness of sin is a poison that plagues the crop with death. And a dead crop receives destruction. God burns that crop. That's what the verse says here, verse eight. And so in light of everything we have seen here, one of the most intense and severe warnings found in the New Testament. I want to close with some practical input. I know many, many of you here, you're students, and right now you're home for the summer. And I want to point out that the summer months, they present all sorts of opportunities for either growth or for decay. I know this, I was a student for far too long, way too long, I'm trying to think, maybe nine years or something. And so every summer, there is, a, there is an opportunity. Either you're going to grow or you're going to decay. You have free time. You have opportunities to pour into the church and into, into the community. You have opportunities to serve and to sacrifice your time for the benefit of the church. 
you have time to pour over God's word, to devote yourself in prayer, to spend time fasting, to seeking God's direction, to seeking God's insight. You have time for that because it's, it's the summer. You don't have all the responsibilities that you have during the middle of the school year. You don't have all of the tests and the exams to study for. Yet at the very same time, summer months also offer an opportunity to become stagnant. Because without responsibilities, without schedules, there is certainly a tendency to grow sluggish and lazy. There's the temptation to play video games all night and to sleep all day. To be honest, with a free schedule and a lack of responsibility, the the temptations to grow lazy only multiply. And with laziness and with sluggishness, what will you find? You will find sin creeping out the door, seeking to devour you. And when you begin to allow that door to crack and sin to creep in, you will find yourself spiraling because there's no structure to your day. You're at home all day doing nothing, and when sin begins to take root in your heart, you're just going to plunge in. And it's in those moments, as you begin to plunge in, that you begin to face these temptations. Am I going to forsake Jesus for my sin? Am I gonna turn from Christ so that I can have this, this craving that I want? So I want to close by encouraging you during this this season of rest, this season of relaxation this summer, pursue Christ and pursue growth. Strive to engage in this community. Strive to engage in the the church abroad here at Golden Hills or whatever, whatever local church you may be a part of. Strive to make the most of your, your free time, time for relaxation. Make the most of your summer by pursuing growth and not decay. So with that, I want to pray us out. Father, we, we just hope that, that you would be at work in our hearts. Lord, as we read challenging texts like this, it's easy to feel despair. And so we ask that your spirit would be at work, comforting those in this room who need to be comforted and we also pray that your spirit would be convicting those who need to be convicted we know that your your spirit and your word are a double-edged sword we also know that your spirit comforts and so we pray that you would bring about the, the comfort that we need as true Christians and the conviction that we need when we are wrestling and, and wandering in our sin. Lord, we trust you. We know that you are good and that you are kind to your people. Help us to believe that all the more. In Christ's name we pray.